So as I said the other day, tonight I like to look at uh, ethics and guidelines. And first to look at the fact that uh, ethics in Buddhism are not as much rule and regulation, like everybody must do this, but it's more as very often used in two different ways. I would say one as inspiration and the other one as checking in terms of is it going along the Eightfold Path? Is it appropriate? Is it appropriate thought, speech, action, livelihood? And so to look at this ethic and guideline, I like to, to look at uh, three different texts. So the first one, if you... <laughs> If you want to look at these two texts I'm going to talk about, you don't have to buy this book. What you can do is just go on the internet and then you will find version of the Sigalavaka Sutta and the Brahmajala Sutta. So you don't have to buy the book. But I did not have uh, any other copy, so that's what I'm going to use. So the first text is a text I like very much because it's really a text for ordinary people. It's really not a text for superhuman behavior. And what is interesting is that in that text, we really see the way the Buddha and the follower of the Buddha looks at ethics in terms of what are the conditions that more likely to help you to be ethical and what are the conditions that are not going to help you to be ethical? Which, again, is not like, you know, there is the right way, but there is more skillful and less skillful. And also what I found very interesting in terms of what is described, and it could, it could be dating to the time of the Buddha or a little afterward that it sounds like in 2,500 years, humans being behavior have not changed very much. <laughs> and that's what I personally I found very inspiring and sobering at the same time. So here, uh, the text is quite long. I just want to talk about a few places. And here the Buddha talks about in which are the six ways of waiting, wasting one's substance that a follower of the Buddha is not advised to follow. Addiction to strong drink and sloth-producing drugs, haunting the streets at unfitting times, <laughs> attending fair, being addicted to gambling, keeping bad company, and habitual idleness. But then he explains why. He explains why. For example, he continues, there are six dangers attached to addiction to strong drink and drug, present waste of money, increased quarreling, 
liability to sickness, loss of good name, indecent exposure of one's person. and weakening of the intellect. I mean, this is quite right on. (laughs) And things have not much change. (laughs) Then you might wonder about what's the problem with haunting the streets at unfitting time. (laughs) The Buddha is going to tell you one is defenseless and without protection. And so are one's wives and children, and so is one's property. One is suspected of crimes, and false reports are pinned on one. And one encounters all sorts of unpleasantness. So basically saying, don't go out too late at night. (laughs) Bad things can happen. (laughs) And it's kind of right. But then my favorite is the six dangers to idleness. Thinking, it's too cold, one doesn't work. Thinking, it's too hot, one doesn't work. Thinking, it's too early, one doesn't work. Thinking, it's too late, one doesn't work. Thinking, I am too hungry. One doesn't work. I am too full. One doesn't work. Kind of sounds a bit like teenagers, eh? <laughs> so, I mean, to me, what is interesting is really that that you kind of it really looks at at what are the conditions. So it's, gone on, it's not arbitrary rule and regulation. It's very much looking at what is going to help you, but not just you. What is going to help your family? What is going to help your property? And in the way, what is going to help your community? And then also, well, I mean, there is a huge, but I want to read it out, passage about friends. In that sutta, there is a lot about friendship, about what is a good friend, and what is not a good friend? It's very interesting. And he really looks at it in many different ways. And then really emphasizing friendship. And then there is this really amazing passage. Which, which I think shows that the Buddha was a little ahead of his time. And this is about the five ways in which a master, because there is then the the, f- the five ways the husband take care of the wife, the wife take care of the husband, the parents take care of the children, the children take care of the parents. And then you have the five ways in which a master should minister to his servants and work people by arranging their work according to their strengths by supplying them with food and wages, by looking after them when they're ill, by sharing special delicacies with them, and by letting them off work at the right time. Isn't this enlightened, you know, for this time? Very interesting. Again, 
Because what are the conditions which are more likely for that worker to work in a good way if there are conditions which are peaceful, which are rewarding, etc., etc. So to me, that's what again and again, when you read the sutta, you, you have the feeling that the, re, the Buddha is very observant, not just of himself, which he is, but also of others. And what are the conditions that seems to help people? What are the conditions that do not seem to help people? And then I wanted to, to look at the Brahm. So this was a Sigalaka Sutta. That's a Sigalaka Sutta. And it, has, it can also be said as the Sigalavada Sutta, the Sigalavuda Sutta. But if you put in Google Sigalaka, then generally you get it. Then this one I want to look at. It's the Brahmajala Sutta. And what is interesting with the Brahmajala Sutta is that in the Pali Canon you have one, and in the Mahayana Canon you have another, and actually they're not the same, and at the same time the first one, the Pali one, was the inspiration for the second one. And the second one, the Mahayana one, is actually the basis for the Bodhisattva precepts, which are actually the basis for ethics common to monks, nuns, and lay people in the Mayana tradition of the Chinese sort, because the Tibetans have a different set of vows. And so that's why I like to, to read out how to you. I know it's a little long, but I think it's interesting to see that around the 400, 450 in China, all the text, all the main text, the early text and the Mayana text had been translated into Chinese. And so this was translated into Chinese. And to me, what is interesting is that from this text, which is just kind of like, you know, a little paragraph, a kind of, you know, consistent paragraph, then the Chinese made, created this whole ethics for themselves. And to me, it bears the thing that if we were to read this paragraph now, what is the ethics, what are the guidelines that we would produce for our world today? So that's what he goes. Of course, first he looks at you know, the main five ones, which is to not kill, to not steal, etc. But then it says, the ascetic Gotama, the Buddha, is a refrainer from damaging seeds and crops. He eats once a day and not at night, refraining from eating at improper time. He avoids watching dancing, singing, music, and shows. He abstains from using garland, perfume, cosmetic, ornament, and adornment. He avoids using high or white beds. He avoids accepting gold and silver. He avoids accepting raw grain and raw flesh. He does not accept women and young girls, male or female slaves, sheep and goats, cocks and pigs, elephants, cattle, horses and mares, fields and plots. He refrains from running errands, from buying and selling, 
from cheating with false weights and measures, from bribery and corruption, deception and insincerity, from wounding, killing, imprisoning, highway robbery, and taking food by force. So that's what the Buddha doesn't do. <laughs> so he's a fairly harmless fellow. That's fairly sure. But, but what is interesting from this passage, which I think in a way really describe, in a way, the, the different way where the harmlessness of the Buddha would go. So that's what I found interesting in many of the texts, is that it's quite complete. It's kind of like, it really looks at everybody, every sector. So it's like trying not to forget anybody. It's kind of trying to consider everybody you could think of. And I find that interesting. So it's less about, of course it's about don't do this, but it's don't do this to many, many, many different categories of people, of life, or plans, and also in many different ways. So again, it's back looking at all the conditions, but also relating to the whole world. And not just, you know, thinking of one small place. And that gave rise to this text, which is a text that translated from the Korean with the help of the Chinese, which is this Brahmajala Sutta. And the Brahmajala Sutta is basically the Bodhisattva precept. And Bodhisattva means person who aspires to awakening. So this is, in a way, the ethical guideline for people who aspire to awakening. So it's not any guideline. It's actually for the one who aspires to awakening. And what is interesting, then, they transform this paragraph I read into 10 major precepts and then 48 secondary precepts. And what they do is that they take each of the, the piece of that paragraph and then they extend it, they comment on it, and they apply it to their Chinese situation. So some part of the text is very, I would say, universal, applicable to everybody, and then some part of the text is very Chinese. And that's why you can see that also they say the Buddha made it. Actually, it was produced in China between 450 and 470 because it's a very Chinese text. You have many different terms which you can only find in a Chinese text. And what is interesting there is a preamble. And the preamble, they talk about the precept. And they say the ethical precepts are like a brilliant lamp which can disperse the darkness of the night. They are like a most precious mirror, which is able to reflect the Dharma in its entirety. They are like a most valuable jewel, which frees one from poverty and endows one with wealth. So what is interesting here is that you don't see the, the precepts are not presented as restriction, as restraint, but they kind of show that actually they are an integral part of the path and that they're actually more to help you to be uplifted, that they're really part of the liberation 
of the freedom. And then they have another place where they talk about the, the precept. And they say, if you keep the precept, it will be like seeing the light of a fire in a dark place. It will be like a poor man finding a jewel. It will be like a sick person being restored to health. It will be like a prisoner being released. It will be like the return of someone who has wandered far from home. So again, the precept, an integral part of the path, of the practice. And I think to see that the meditation we do here is actually the precept has to function. I would say the meditation will help us to be more able to actually cultivate these precepts. And at the same time, the precepts will help us to more easily meditate. Because in a way, if you're kind of like doing things which are harmful or negative, often it will kind of ease on your mind. And if you do something which is more skillful, harmless, generally it has a more peaceful effect, a more peaceful condition. And what I, why, one of the reasons I um, decided to translate the precept when I was in Korea was because as I understood the Korean better, because we recite this once a month at least. The monks and the nuns recite it once a month and the lay people take them every year. So the precepts are not seen as some kind of like you take them once and you must keep them forever, 100%. But they're seen as an aspiration, as an inspiration, and that a lot of the time you will not be able to do it. So that you have to be reminded of what you aspire to. Reminded what... You, you can be inspired by. And so as I was uh, listening to this precept, then I started to see that the way the people behave in the temple was very much according to what was in the text. And especially one ritual, which for me was really kind of uh, different, was this ritual of forgiveness that we kind of became aware of over time. And the ritual is that if you make a mistake, you generally go up to the person further up from you and you say, I made a mistake, you bow three times, and they say, fine, and this is it. And it's really forgiven. But like In the West, often I feel... We forgive, but we don't forget. And so generally, we kind of serve it again. But there, that was my experience. It's never mentioned again, never considered again. This is it. The idea is that you know you made a mistake, and when you say that, you endeavor not to do it again. But what was interesting was the Westerners, that... Master Cousin would see them do something and would say to them, hey, that was a mistake. And then the Westerner would go into all kind of self-justification about, you know, but what, but, you know, this happened and I, blah, 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 blah. 
And Master Kuzan used to sit there and think, you know, can't they kind of, you know, get on with it, you know? Do the three bar, we can get this over. <laughs> but, you know, justifying and all this. And I had this experience with him. Once we were traveling, I was te- uh, he was uh, in America, and we were traveling, I was translating. And then somebody asked him a, a little of a ridiculous question. And the person asked him, what do you think? Should I become a Buddhist monk or a Christian monk? <laughs> and so, of course, Master Cousin said, of course, a Buddhist monk. And me being French, I argued with him, why? You know, he could, it's as good. Da, 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 da. So we got in a little of an argument. And then afterward, I felt bad. You know, I had argued with my Zen master. Ooh, that was not a good idea. I felt bad. <laughs> so then, you know, I go to him, and I bow three times. I said to him, I made a mistake. And then he said to me, yeah, yeah, I made a mistake too. <laughs> so he can, you know, go both ways. But the first time I experienced a ritual was after I had been in Korea for a year as a young nun. And uh, in Korea, when you're a young nun, first you're six months a postulant, then you get the first initiation, ordination. And you generally are given a preceptress, if you're a nun, a preceptor, if you're a monk. And so our preceptresses, mine and somebody else, another nun, a Western nun, thought we did not behave so well. And so they wanted to take us with them to a nunnery, and then we would really learn correct behavior. And we were very keen, because we said, great, we're going to be with the nun, because we were with the monks, because there was the only place there was foreigners. And... So, okay, we go with them to this nunnery in the middle of nowhere. And we think we are behaving quite well, until the preceptress who came with us to kind of keep us check, came to us and said, you know, this is not working. You know, you're really you know, doing a lot of mistakes. And we also were a bit unhappy because it was a little kind of a culture shock. First time we were really with the Korean nuns the whole time, 24 hours a day. It was a bit of a culture shock. So then she tells us we must bow. We must do the f- three bows and say we made a mistake. So we did not really understand why, because we could not really speak the Korean well, but we understood something was not good. <laughs> so, okay, we all wear our clothes, proper clothes to do it, and then we go to the meditation room, and then we go to do it. But then nobody is there to take the three bows. Because I, I, I never knew why, but I presume they were off feeling a bit awkward with this kind of Western nun, what can we do, you know. So... It was interesting, we made the three bar and said we made a mistake to emptiness. <laughs> but then it led me to think, you know, yeah, maybe, you know, we make some mistake. And so, but I had to understand, but what are the mistakes I make? Because I was not really aware of that. Then slowly I understood two things. The first thing I understood is that I must not look at somebody superior directly in the eyes. And then my first reaction at the Western world, I have to look at them, to talk to them, you know. And then I, could, I understood it did not mean that I had to look like this, but I had to kind of look sideways. So I had to kind of understand how to look without looking. So that was an interesting kind of, kind of trying to find how to adapt to that. 
But the best one, which really mystified me, was I was made to understand that I should watch the elder nun in such a way that before they even thought of sweeping the leaves, I would be there sweeping them instead of them. And my first reaction was, well, I can't read their mind, you know. Does it mean I'm always kind of watching them? And then as soon as they get up, then I jump, you know, <laughs> so that they don't do it, you know. So I kind of... And then I understood what he really meant. What they meant is not for me to watch uh, Eldenar, but actually me to see more around what was going on and to notice if there was leaves, not to wait for the elder nun to sweep them, but me to see the leaves and think, ah, I could sweep them. And, and that actually really helped me in a way to understand that the awareness was not just this awareness of myself, but it really was the awareness of the environment and of the people in the environment and how I could creatively engage in the environment. But to me, this, um, this ritual of forgiveness is interesting because recently I read this book, which I recommend to everybody, and it is called Mistake Were Made, parenthesis, not by me. <laughs> and so the whole book is about cognitive dissonance and the self-justification we get more and more and more stuck in in order to kind of resolve the cognitive dissonance. And so what I found was interesting is that in a way that ritual, the idea of the, the two people who wrote the book of mistake were made but not by me, is that you start, everybody is at the same level, and you start at the top of the pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid, you understand each other, you don't have any problem. And then cognitive dissonance starts, then you start self-justification, and that feeds, that feeds. And then you go more and more down the bottom of the pyramid, and then you find yourself so far apart and generally in a very different reality or perception of reality. And then it's very hard for the people to kind of find compromise or kind of find some place where they can meet each other again. And it seems to me that this ritual of forgiveness was actually about mistakes were made by me. And actually by acknowledging it by somebody else, acknowledging it in this accepting warm way, you stayed up the pyramid and then you did not go down there. And I was amazed again and again how it was really so. It really, that ritual really helps you to see the person as human being, as valuable. And in that way, as seeing them as, in a way, conditional. And so that as not ascribing to them certain quality that would be on them the whole time. Because one which came very stark for me, somebody I knew, a monk, who was very impulsive, very violently impulsive. 
And possibly that's why he became a monk, to try to work with his problem. But being a monk did not help as much, possibly as it hoped. And in situation of stress, he would really be quite violently impulsive. To such a degree that finally one day he really, really hurt somebody and he ended up in jail. And so I was meeting a friend years later and I was saying, oh yeah, what happened to that guy, you know, that kind of difficult monk? And then he told me, you know, he did this and he is in jail now. And I said to him, why, he was terrible, that guy, he was awful. And my friend said, no. He was just, you know, a human being who was at this compulsion. But no, he's not intrinsically bad. He's not intrinsically terrible. You know, he's just who he is. And I could not get him to say, this guy is the worst guy in the universe. (laughs) And to me, this was really kind of, it really showed me that that, in a way, that ritual help you to stay at the top of the pyramid and to see the person in a much more multiple way instead of kind of really reducing the person to any one quality and then, you know, they finished for life and you really generally remove them from your life. And this ritual actually comes from this trying to find where it is, number nine. Ah, number nine, this is of the, so refrain from being angry. When someone comes to ask forgiveness, treat him well. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from becoming angry himself and must not make others angry. You must never create the causes and condition for becoming angry, devise a means of giving rise to anger, or commit acts of anger himself. It is a duty of a bodhisattva to be always kind to others and never to quarrel with them. He should always present a compassionate mind. If, on the contrary, a bodhisattva should abuse a living creature... (coughs) or vent his anger on an inanimate object. And if somebody politely begs forgiveness, his anger remains unappeased, this would be a serious transgression. I mean, what is interesting here is this. First is uh, vent is abuse a living creature. And the second is vent is anger on an inanimate object. So you can imagine a Chinese man kicking a cart. And nowadays we kick the wheel of our car or we kick our computer. So again, people have not changed very much here. But again, this thing that if somebody asks for your forgiveness, what do you do? That, that, that I think, is kind of very challenging. Then I wanted to look at the way, like, take the first one, refrain from taking life. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from taking life either by performing the act of killing himself, 
by causing someone else to do it, by doing it in a roundabout way, by praising death, by the use of spell and mantra. So again, it's kind of looking not at just not doing it, but it's looking at the condition in which we might come to do it, or we might, we might kind of, in a way, push somebody to do it, or also create the means to do it, like sword or guns or whatever. So what I find interesting, again, is looking at the condition. It's not just saying, don't do this, but it's kind of, in a way, asking us to look at, do, if we don't do it ourselves, do we create the condition for somebody else to do it? There is an interesting one with um, lying, telling lies. Because you have the same here. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from telling lies either by doing so himself, by causing someone else to do it, by doing it in a roundabout way. He must never create the causes and conditions for telling lies, devising a means for doing so, actually telling them himself. Then, that gets subtle. He must never convey the impression that he saw something that he did not see, or he did not see something that he did see, either by physical gestures or mental intention. That's getting more and more subtle. But I think, in a way, to me, I don't see this precept. I'm making us kind of like anxious. I must not do this. I must not do that. But more at exploring how actions came about, how our acts come about. And also, not only that, how we influence people to be ethical or not. Because sometimes we don't do it where we might create the condition for somebody else to do it. So it's kind of really looking at that, the condition in which the act comes in. Then this one is interesting. Refrain from reviling others in order to spare oneself. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from being miserly and must not encourage others to be so. He must never create the causes and conditions for miserliness, etc., etc. Should he be approached by a poor person begging for something, he should give whatever is requested. If, on the contrary, a bodhisattva, out of an angry or evil mind, doesn't give a beggar anything, not even a single penny, a needle or a tiny plant, or doesn't give someone in search of dharma even a few words of advice, then instead reviles him with harsh and evil word, this is a serious transgression. So again, here... It's kind of looking how sometimes we can, in a way, revile others in order to spare ourselves. And I think one of the easy ones is, uh, is uh, the one about the beggars. Nowadays, you have more beggars on the street of industrialized society at the moment with the crisis. And often what we say to ourselves is, oh, they're going to spend it on drink, they're going to do this, they're going to do this. And then... We don't give anything. But in a way, I'm not saying that you should give to all the beggars because sometimes they are quite a lot. 
But I think in a way, can we see them as human beings who have their condition? And often what personally I see is that even if they are professional beggars, in a way, this is kind of in a way the, the thing they found to do because they could possibly not do something else. And personally, I would like, not like to be there all day long, sitting on the pavement in the rain, waiting that somebody see me to give me something or not. So you know, it's to kind of, instead of kind of finding again, back to self-justification, is trying to see the human being where they are. And then it's back to our limits. How much can I give to the person? at that moment, and who I choose to give. I was talking to this, about this precept once, and a lady said, yes, I had this experience, that when I used to go to the theater, all the beggars found that, you know, generally people who go to the theater have some money, so then there would be a line of beggars, you know, on the way to the theater. So finally she decided not to go to the theater anymore, because she felt so embarrassed. And then she decided to go, but with creative engagement. So what she would do is that she would gather small change, quite a lot of small change. Then she would go to the theater, then she would give something to everybody on the way to the theater. So you know, it became kind of an opportunity to see uh, a piece of theater and at the same time to give to people, to see them there. Then I wanted to say 29. Yes, this is to show a little how, in a way, ethical guidelines generally adapt to the cultural conditions. So this one is about do not hold an unwholesome occupation. A disciple of the Buddha must not, with evil intention and for the sake of gain, Engage in such occupations as selling physical charms of men and women, preparing food with his own hands, pounding grain with a pestle or grinding them in a meal, telling fortunes by looking at a person's face, interpreting dreams, so Yugen therapies get into trouble, <laughs> predicting the sex of the child, kind of gynecological clinic, making use of spells and magic, performing tricks in order to deceive others, domesticating hawks, preparing any kinds of dangerous drugs, concocting poison out of gold, silver, or the venom of insects. So again, you can see that that was occupation then. Nowadays, in that unwholesome occupation, we might put something else. And then the last one I wanted to mention is this one. Uh, no. no, that was not that one, actually. I have lost it. Because there is a one, a very beautiful one, about... I can't find it. Never mind, because it was a beautiful one. Ah, here it is. It's a beautiful one. Care well for those who are sick. 
Upon seeing someone who is afflicted with a disease, a disciple of the Buddha must care and provide for him as he would for the Buddha himself. First among the eight fields of blessing is that of nursing the sick. And so in a way, again, here, the, the Buddha is saying you need to, again, to, it's not just for your own suffering. You, you need to see the suffering of others. So what is interesting about these precepts, they're not just about restraint. They're not just about don't do this, don't do that. They also, also do this, do that. I mean, they have one about be careful when you light fires so that you don't destroy life and you don't destroy plant. So you're, they're only used to burn the field in the winter and things like that. So again, it's kind of looking at the condition. What is it that is skillful, unskillful? What is going to help? Not just you, but really the world around you. So in a way to see the ethical guideline as actually, I would say, not only harmless, but actually more about sustaining life and kind of like a, a compassionate, wise way of sustaining life and also sustaining relationship. So that's what I wanted to talk about today. Are there any questions or comments? Mm -hmm. yeah, I was wondering, in which um, circumstances of the Brahma uh, Jarnal Sutra, mm. uh, is, that, is there anything about, about the black food, the, the Mahayana precept of not eating black foods? Things like onions and garlic and uh, so this that kind of thing. And I was wondering if there are any seeds of that in the pali. In the in, in the pali, possibly. Uh, no, you don't. That that is not there. But you see, they think they think that that one, like in here, you have the one about not eating garlic, not eating onions, and things of that nature. But they think that that one actually came more from the yoga tradition. Because this was, in a way, 450 in China. So by then, I think the yoga tradition might have kind of influenced part of the Mahayana. And I think that's why the black food, that's not in the, the Chinese Mahayana. I think that's possibly more in the Tibetan uh, vows, possibly, possibly. Because I never understood the rationale for that one. Because, of course, in the West we're told those are such healthy foods. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I think the reason is because, uh, in, uh, in terms of the yoga, I think it was understood as exciting the humors. So then since the, the path is to calm the humor, not to make you more excitable, then that was more seen as like garlic and onion are supposed to excite you. Yeah, yeah, which, I mean, I don't think that as vegetarian we might have eaten lots of garlic and onion and generally it doesn't seem to have that effect on us, but who knows, it might have had that effect on ancient people. But possibly, you see, one, these kind of diet, dietary things, one has to be careful because sometimes it happens because maybe there was a bad batch of onions or the bad batch of garlic and then everybody kind of, you know, is ill from it. And after that, somebody thinks, okay, 
no more onion, no more garlic, and this is it. So, and then that gets lost in kind of the... Yeah. Yes? All those um, ethics, um, more, more or less like instruction, you know, mm-hmm. to me. And I suppose if one is a devoted Buddha, who follow those, or try to follow those instructions. And yet, somewhere I heard that when you get mature, when you get liberated, when you see Buddha, you kill Buddha. That is more or less on the other side of the spectrum. Yeah, uh, uh, there, is, there is two things to be careful about. One is uh, the, the thing about the killing the Buddhas is just come from the Zen tradition. This is the only place you find it. And it's just one, one story. And I think one has to be very careful that, that those stories might not be historical. I mean, you have another story when you have a Zen master who cuts a cat in two to prove a point. Uh, we doubt it. We doubt it. So I think often we have to see these um, koans, these stories, more as parable and not necessarily as historical fact. And I think there the point is more like a metaphor. That, the, that, that one about that one is about being careful not to sacralize the Buddha. So that if you think too much that the, you can never attain the Buddha, then you always remain down. And the idea is that you think that you can be as awakened as the Buddha. So it's kind of like, you know, don't grasp at the Buddha, don't grasp at the idea of the Buddha, don't grasp it as kind of being always superior and you're not getting there. That's what the idea of the killing the Buddha is, not of actually going and killing him. Because actually... Yeah, yeah, no, I know, but because killing the Buddha is one of the heinous crimes. And the other thing one has to be careful is sometimes in some tradition, like in the Tibetan tradition and in the Zen tradition, there is this idea that if you become awakened, you're transcending so much everything that then you are beyond ethics. And the problem with that is that people who say that, generally the first thing they do is go and drink alcohol and have sex instead of drinking urine and eating feces, which if they kind of saw transcending, they could also do, you know, kind of, etc., etc. So I think one has to be careful of what sometimes is called crazy wisdom. Personally, I think this is a dubious term which you don't find anywhere in the text. And this is more like a modern, I would say, invention. So sometimes, yes, in the, the, like the Zen school or some of the Tibetan school, you have kind of things which are a little uh, challenging in terms of ethics. Then personally, I think one has to be careful with them because sometimes they're more used as a metaphor and sometimes I think they kind of... Uh, concept which are a little problematic. Can I just follow? Sure, sure. I mean, if, say for instance, one's pattern of life is such that you um, uh, read uh, spiritual books, uh, meditation, uh, and you get yourself grounded as much as possible, follow that kind of pattern in life. Uh, 
I just feel that, you know, maybe I'm talking about myself, is um, you, you've got room to manoeuvre because you're already grounded. And so you can, I mean, you, you don't go to that other extreme, but you don't have to stick to all the bits <laughs> you said there, but you can be yourself. Yeah, I think... And, and, and just, you know. <laughs> no, no, I see what you mean. You see, I mean, there is two points here. One point is, personally, I see this as more inspiration. You see, I really think we have to be careful. These are not rules and regulation. That every day I read them and I'm going to do exactly what they say. I don't think that's about that. But I think it's more kind of like uh, cultivating the second of the Noble Eightfold Path. is kind of, you know, cultivating thought of harmlessness, of non-ill will of renunciation. And then that's kind of more open, you could say, instead of don't do this, don't do that. And I think also another aspect of, um, of the precept, which is interesting in Korea, is there is this great master, and he says you need to know how to open and close the precept. So what he means, for example, is that if you see a deer going on the left, and you have a hunter who comes and say, where is the deer? And you say, well, he went right. Then you can lie out of compassion. So I think, again, one has to be careful not to see it as a kind of literally exactly like this, but more as a kind of something to reflect upon in our life. And, of course, it's true that as we meditate more, I think naturally, generally, we are ethical. And at the same time, we have to be careful because I think time to time we have blind spots. And so we might not see where actually we're not ethical sometimes. Okay, so maybe now. Oh, okay, if there is... Yeah, it's a little along the same lines. I was thinking as well, you know, some religions feel a bit more like rules and regulations and if you break them, it's the same, and, you know, like that. And... I was thinking as well with the practice, it feels like more that, you know, the gradations you were talking about, first of all you don't do it, then you don't create conditions where you might do it, other people might do it, that is it sort of a gradual process that the more you practice things kind of fall away, you know, that, you know, maybe initially you might stop a behaviour and then a bit further down the line it gets a bit refined uh, through the practice, um, something like that? Yeah, I would say so, I would say so, and I, I think... At the beginning, there is restraint, and then afterward, you cannot even think of doing it. Because, not because it's, uh, it's not a good idea, but because of compassion. I think that's one of the main things. You can't do it because of compassion. If you have really internalized wise compassion, there is a lot of things you cannot do anymore, I would say, over time, over time. Okay, so... Now there is a walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.